Bridge Bank helps breakthrough ideas actually break through and remains dedicated to providing financial solutions to the risk takers, the game changers, and the disruptors. Bridge Bank, a division of Western Alliance Bank. Bridge Bank, be bold, venture wisely. Hey, what's up? I'm Erica Cruz Guevara, the host of The Bay. Donations keep independent journalism alive and healthy. And you support outstanding journalism when you support KQED. So if you haven't yet, check out donate.kqed.org slash podcasts. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcasts with an S. From KQED. If we're ever going to make housing affordable, we'll need big solutions in the Bay Area. That will mean changing things that have been the norm for decades. One example is single-family zoning. It's played a huge role in keeping housing both unaffordable and racially segregated. But now, some people with power are actually rethinking this policy. It's a really important first step. It's by no means the only step, but we have to begin somewhere. A handful of Bay Area cities are starting to consider allowing buildings with up to four units in places where there have only been single-family homes. It's the kind of change that will take a while to have an impact, but it's also essential to solving the housing crisis. I'm Alan Montecilio. Welcome to the Bay. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. Hey, it's Glenn Washington from Snap Judgment. And if you love what you're hearing, and I know you love what you're hearing, please consider becoming a KQED member special access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. Plus, you'll sleep better at night knowing you did your part for the community you depend upon. It's in you. Please be in it. Visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to sign up now. That's podcast with an S. Thanks. Berkeley, uh, surprisingly, for being the true blue liberal bastion of the Bay Area that we all know it to be, was actually the birthplace of single-family zoning in the United States, as far as we know. Aaron Baldessari is a housing affordability reporter for KQED and the co-host of the podcast Sold Out, Rethinking Housing in America. It was designed as a way to kind of act as a a buffer to a community, Claremont, in Berkeley that had racial covenants to prohibit people of color from owning homes there. But the developer who really championed this idea, Duncan McDuffie, he had a problem, and that was what to do about the neighborhoods that he couldn't control, the neighborhoods that he wasn't developing and didn't own the land to. And so he and and some other um, people in the city decided to make it illegal to build anything other than single-family homes. And his purpose and his stated reason for that was that he was really worried about a black-owned dance hall that was looking to move into the neighborhood. Hmm. And the city was also concerned about Chinese-owned laundries and other parts of town. And so it was a way to limit what could be built and limit what kind of housing uh, was allowed so that it was easier to block out low-income people. 
single family zoning was sort of race neutral in its language. And so it allowed the city to have the impact, the effect of racial exclusion without explicitly saying that people of color couldn't live there, using basically an economic segregation to exclude people of color because, again, single family homes were just more expensive than multifamily housing where a lot of people of color and especially recent immigrants were living. So the beginnings of single-family zoning in Berkeley around the 1910s, what are some of the ways we see that legacy on housing uh, in Berkeley and in the Bay Area today? Communities are as racially segregated or even more racially segregated than they were in the 1970s. And again, a big part of that is cities doubling down on single-family zoning after the passage of the Fair Housing Act. What we see is that those first neighborhoods that adopted single-family zoning are still some of the most racially segregated today. Uh, The UC Berkeley Othering and Belonging Institute did a great, uh, really in-depth five-part series about the impact of zoning on segregation. And they find that, you know, this is pretty much true across the Bay Area where there's a strong correlation between the amount of single-family zoning and the level of racial segregation in cities. And so as the amount of uh, single-family zoning goes up, the proportion of Black and Latinx residents goes way down. A new plan to revamp Berkeley neighborhoods, changes in zoning laws designed to end past policies of discrimination. Good evening, I'm Elizabeth Cook. I'm Alan Martin. First at 5.30, Berkeley looking to revamp its zoning ordinances. And a you know, kind of shock to, to me and, and some colleagues who watch housing, um, Lori Droste, the vice mayor of Berkeley, recently introduced a resolution to end single-family zoning in Berkeley. I represent the area of Berkeley, the Elmwood, where these laws began. We see that this has an enormous impact on outcomes, equitable outcomes. And we're Berkeley. We care about socioeconomic and racial diversity and equity. So we need to act on that. As a secondary measure, she introduced legislation to allow fourplexes throughout the city. Uh, And what that would do is essentially remove single-family zoning um, and allow people to build you know, duplexes, triplexes, multifamily buildings in neighborhoods that have historically been single family neighborhoods. What it does is I think it's it opens the window to a conversation. It's going to crack that window open to be able to talk about our exclusionary zoning policies. This is a city where, you know, a couple of years ago, the city had to be sued twice to allow this kind of development uh, in a neighborhood where they had already allowed it. So it's pretty incredible when you think about Berkeley. And I think it really represents um, a shift in how cities are thinking about their role in perpetuating segregation. And so I feel uh, very morally compelled. I do feel that it's time for us to step up and be leaders and address the harms of our past. Sacramento recently voted in January on a draft plan to allow fourplexes throughout its neighborhoods. Uh, San Jose is considering a similar policy this spring. Uh, San Francisco has a proposal to allow fourplexes on corner lots and in areas within a half mile of transit. 
uh, South San Francisco is studying this, and Oakland is studying this. So we're really seeing a shift in the Bay Area, and I think we'll see this in more California cities in the, in the months and years to come of really rethinking single-family zoning. You just earlier described this long entrenched history of single family zoning, how essential it is to protecting, you know, the way American home ownership has generally gone, which, as you've also described, is is a big contributor to segregation. And then now you're also describing these various proposals and and resolutions that could undo a lot of that, although with lots of different uh, sort of provisions in it. So I'm trying to wrap my mind around how big a deal this is. Is this a really big deal? This represents a fundamental shift in how we think about housing in the United States. It really represents a reversal of the past 50 years of land use policy of cities saying what is allowed to be built and where. I would say that zoning reform, it's the most important first step to solving most of the housing crisis problems. I spoke to Stephen Menendian. He's at the Othering and Belonging Institute at UC Berkeley. And he talks a bit about what this shift means. In the next 10 to 20 years, zoning reform will help produce much more housing and at a lower cost per unit than would otherwise have been built without zoning reform. We can't have more affordable, more inclusive communities unless we take this step first. It doesn't mean that we shouldn't be investing in more affordable housing or protecting renters or passing stronger rent, you know, tenant protections. All of those things need to happen in tandem. But in order to get to the end goal of inclusive, affordable communities, we have to remove single family zoning. In the short term, it's probably not going to make much of a difference especially in built-out areas in the next one to two to three years. There is no silver bullet. If you're looking for a policy that's going to solve this problem in the next two years, it's not going to happen. But what happens is zoning reform, it's the predicate for beginning to unwind this on a larger basis. The idea to me of, of the need for more housing supply, that's such a big part of this whole debate about affordable housing. It seems like ending single family zoning can really open the door to that. But then what I often hear after that is, okay, so we know we need a lot more housing, but then how do we make sure that new housing that gets built isn't just for people with money and doesn't push out people who need housing the most? So I'm wondering, is there pushback in that arena? Are there housing advocates who are concerned that some of these proposals that are are floating around in in various cities and even on the state level, um, is there concern that these could lead to something like that happening instead? Absolutely. We are seeing pushback from uh, housing advocates and advocates for low-income tenants and renters saying that, look, we don't want to see developers coming in, buying up single-family homes in low-income neighborhoods and pushing out renters and people of color who have already been bearing the brunt of gentrification and high housing prices in in their communities. And that is a very fair and valid uh, concern. When I speak to housing researchers, they say that, you know, look, it's likely that developers are going to look first to develop in neighborhoods that are Uh, what we might call high opportunity. They have nicer parks, the home values are higher, 
because they can charge higher rents as a result of that. And again, many low-income communities um, and communities near, you know, transit lines um, that have seen a lot of development in recent years have been seeing that development because it is illegal to build multifamily housing in single-family neighborhoods. And many of those communities already allow fourplexes, duplexes, and things of that nature. And while a low-income person might not be able to afford one of the new units of this, you know, fourplex that's built where a single family home used to be, there will be more housing available in their community for them to be able to afford something somewhere else. The idea is that by allowing more housing to be built, you're actually uh, reducing the risk of someone having to leave their community in search of affordable housing because you're opening up more areas of the community to development. But those concerns are very real, and we see them all over the Bay Area. The default in this country is to go to market solutions, even though we have over 100 years of evidence that they don't work. I spoke to Tony Rashan Samara from Urban Habitat, and one of his main concerns is that, look, this policy is going to take a really long time, right? We know it's not going to happen overnight. And so in the meantime, low-income communities are still going to be facing lots of pressure from uh, development and from rising rents. The majority of those suffering housing insecurity are renters. Uh, kind of related to that, you want to preserve existing affordable housing that people are living in, right? Make sure that that doesn't get snapped up by the market. And so he says that there needs to be really strong tenant protections in place to ensure that people are not getting displaced from their homes as a result of policies like this, and really to guard against speculation from developers buying up single-family homes and maybe leaving them vacant until they you know, can get the financing together to convert them into a, du- a duplex or a fourplex, or um, until they think that the market conditions are right for them to make the optimal amount of profit. So, you know, conversion of uh, a naturally affordable housing to land trusts, um, you know, that, that kind of range of, of options to, to take housing that is currently affordable and making that permanent. I just want to take a step back and consider what, what all of this means, what the potential change to single family zoning means, because, you know, we're talking about decades and decades of single family zoning. And, and now it seems like we're seeing the possibility of that changing, uh, which, as you said, is a really big deal, even if, if the changes might not happen overnight. So why do you think this is happening now? There's two reasons. One, California is facing a housing crisis and has been facing a housing crisis, you know, really building over the last decade since the foreclosure crisis and really, um, you know, even before that, right? There's been a huge undersupply of housing and um, cities are looking for ways to allow more housing to be built. And that means looking at single family neighborhoods. But I think Another reason why we're seeing these types of proposals were the George Floyd protests over the summer and this, you know, incredible outpouring um, of, uh, you know, demanding racial justice. Housing is one of the places where we see racial segregation the most and which really, you know, where you live really determines so much about what kind of opportunities you're going to have in life. I mean, 
where you go to school, what kind of parks you have access to, whether you have clean air to breathe, uh, whether you're exposed to crime uh, in your neighborhood, all of that is really determined about where you live. You know, Aaron, there's there's so much that needs to change if housing in the Bay Area is to become truly affordable for everyone. What do you think this story says about the housing crisis right now, about um, the possibility of, of some things actually changing? It's a really important first step. It's by no means the only step and by no means uh, a panacea. But in order to get to that truly inclusive, affordable types of communities that we want to see that allows low-income people to live side by side with middle-income or even upper-income people, you know, we have to begin somewhere. You can't build affordable housing if it's illegal to build that housing. You can't get rid of uh, racial segregation unless we lower the barriers to entry to certain neighborhoods. It can open the door if we are smart and if we really pair it with these other policies to ensure it's truly benefiting everybody. Aaron, thank you so much. Thank you. Aaron Baldessari reports on housing affordability for KQED. She's also the co-host of Sold Out, Rethinking Housing in America. This episode was produced by Asal Asanapur and Erica Cruz Guevara. Elizabeth Mendoza writes our weekly newsletter. We're made by your local public media station, KQED. I'm Alan Montesilio. Thanks for listening, and talk to you next time. Hi, I'm Sasha Coca, host of the California Report magazine. Every week, we bring you stories about what connects us in the giant, diverse Golden State. Because what happens in California changes the world. I love this place. We were once seen as, like, the place to be California. The land of milk and honey. That's where you go to Sunshine State. But we just have challenges right now. KQED's California Report magazine. New episodes drop every Friday, wherever you get your podcasts. Hey there, this is Brittany Luce from NPR's It's Been a Minute. KQED's podcasts like The Bay, Bay Curious, Mind Shift, Right Nowish, and more all tell the stories of the Bay and beyond with reliable, human-centered journalism. They aim to inspire, make you think, entertain, and expand your understanding of the place you call home. Here's how you can support podcasting at KQED. Showing your support is easy, and you can join Brittany in supporting KQED Podcast too at donate.kqed.org slash podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast.